Shabbat Shalom, everyone. It is just so fabulous to be here. And um, I want to frame our talk today before we say the blessings for learning Torah together. Uh, we are uh, working our way through uh, a couple of articles in this uh, journal called Sources that the Hartman Institute comes out with. And last week, we read Elliot Cosgrove's piece. He's the rabbi at Park Avenue Synagogue in New York. And he writes uh, about a diagnosis that hardly anyone could gainsay, hardly anyone could deny, which is that the movement, the conservative movement, of which he's a part, uh, is not halachic. People don't respond to commands. They don't believe in a commanding God. They don't see themselves bound by halacha. Um, and, and then that, that was clear. His prescription, what do you do about it, to me, anyway, it was murky. People could read it differently. But his, his diagnosis had perfect clarity. His uh, conclusion was, it felt murky to me. He kind of talked about commandedness, but how you do commandedness when people don't believe in a commanded God, not clear to me. So we stopped there. And um, Bob Kahn, uh, after class, was mentioning to me, hey, there's another article right after that in this by Leon Morris who is the president of Pardes Institute, which is a wonderful learning uh, yeshiva in Jerusalem. Actually, Elisa studied there before she went to Hebrew college for her ordinations, uh, as did Michelle, apparently. And, um, and he's also the son in love of uh, our own beloved Joel Berkowitz. And he writes a whole piece about uh, a, a what to do about it, which we'll get to in a minute. Um, but first, let's thank God for the gift of learning Torah together. Baruch so, dear colleagues, good Shabbos and good morning. And before we get into Leon Morris, um, I wanted to step back and ask what's at stake in this conversation. In other words, the premise of this uh, journal is that there is a, a lack of alignment, a disconnect between the principles of uh, liberal Judaism, the principles of non-Orthodox Judaism, um, and the actual lived lives of, of American Jews. And, uh, and the question I want to ask is, what's at stake in this conversation? What hangs in the balance? So here's how I want to begin this. I actually did some research. I had heard a statistic from Yehuda Kurtzer in September when he was at Temple Emanuel speaking at a CJP event. And it had been hanging around in my head for all these months. And then I actually went to the source to confirm it. So um, here's the answer. Uh, conservative congregations in America, according to the United Synagogue of Conservative Judaism, the USCJ, that is the organization responsible for shepherding them, reports, and I, they confirmed this uh, just uh, Thursday or Friday of this week, that in the 1970s, there were 900 conservative synagogues in North America. Today, there are 540. So we went from 900 to 540, okay? And of course, we're very much trying to resist that trend line here. Obviously, we're doing a strategic plan. Um, we're devotees of the Stockdale paradox in, 
in Good to Great by Jim Collins, which is Stockdale Paradox, is confront the brutal reality, mm -hmm. 900 to 540, something is amiss, but have absolute confidence that you can transcend, and we do and we will, and we're working on that with the strategic plan. But I wanted to use those numbers, 900 to 540, as a backdrop to ask what's at stake. So here's my question, my opening gambit to you. If you had to point to a single driver or a couple of major drivers that could explain why our movement has declined from 900 to 540, what would you say that is? And um, if you could think of a couple of solutions to um, reverse those trend lines, what would you think it would be? <laughs> that's a hard one. Uh, that, that's a a challenging question because I think there's not maybe one answer, but I think there's a multiplicity of answers. Certainly we're living in a culture right now more broadly, even outside of Jewish life, where the those traditions that are on the right are um, having traction and, and the liberal pieces of our American culture in general um, are finding themselves with um, liberal religious um, pieces finding themselves um, with some struggle more broadly. Um, I, I think American culture, which sets us up to be independent actors, individualism, is a little challenging for, um, for a tradition that tries to walk the balance between being uh, connected and commanded and being free right, and ha being able to innovate and drive. Um, and I think people like simple answers. And you always say the best sermon is a simple sermon. And the conservative movement's theology, philosophy, engagement is not always a simple sermon. It requires taking into account both our tradition and change. I mean, for how many years has the conservative movement been trying to come up with a tagline that actually will very simply articulate what we are? Part of being a big tent is that there's not one thing that we are. We are many things to many mm. people, and it's not a simple sermon. I have a different answer to that, Yay. which I love and respect what you just said. But, yes. but um, I'm going to do an analogy. I was, when, when I started going to restaurants here in, in, uh, in America with my wife, I was taking but one usual situation that I saw over and over. People called their waiters and they said, can I have the Greek salad, please? Sure, but can I have no olives, no cheese, <laughs> no the, and can I add tuna? Can I add eggs? Can I add this and that? Of course, sure. So what does it mean? It's not what the restaurant does. I mean, what I, you know, if I consume what is there, is what the restaurant is able to do for me. Mm -hmm. The power of being happy. There is some mysterious reasons that society has created this idea that we have to find happiness no matter what, how we reach it. Find your own way. You know, find ways of going that what, Take from here, take from there, take right. from that. The power of individualism. Yeah. So, so that, that is to me the answer. Yeah, and 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 that connects that connects very much with Leon Morris's article because he the the language he uses is autonomy. Whereas I'm going to be my own autonomous salad orderer. I don't want your Greek salad. I want my version of a Greek salad. And he talks about, for example, people who 
uh, say, I'm going to do Passover, but I'm not going to do it on the designated night. I'm going to do it on an available weekend in April mm -hmm. when it works for me and my family. Yeah. So I'm going to do Passover not in sync with the Jewish world, like I'm going to order a salad not in sync with what the restaurant serves, autonomy. And then the question that he's going to wrestle with here is, um, is there a way to think about, um, is there some concept that we could teach that could persuade people to use their autonomy to choose to, um, to bind themselves to something larger than themselves? Yeah. Mr. Nesson. Yeah, I, I was thinking that I think uh, this, this diminution um, of the conservative movement really started in the 19th century, and I think Cusco's article really, when he when the, the history, is really uh, when he when he pointed out that the, the again again it has to do with what Michelle said with the individualism that um, that the the concept of uh, of of America and the Jews coming from uh, you know from Eastern Europe and the idea that um, that that we get to choose um, you know uh, has actually created a situation which. Um, and it's kind of like like a landslide, you know. Right. It starts off very slowly, and over a long period of time. But then, then there's this su there's suddenly uh, a precipitous, I'm going to say a precipitous, precipitous event. But just, it just slowly, 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 and then there's a moment where things begin to collapse a little bit. So I think really it's the the history of of what both Elias and Michelle are saying that the idea that uh, individualism. Uh, and you know, commandedness, or uh, you know, uh, or, or, or et cetera, are, are really just uh, taking a very long time. But that's the uh, the end result is this what they call the slippery slope. I think. Right. Well, so I think is, is yeah. there an answer? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I thank you. So I think all of this backdrop sets us up to think about a question, which I I, I want to leave you with a question. I want to leave you with a question, and not with an answer. Which is, do ideas matter here? Do ideas matter here? Do intellectual arguments matter here? Are the forces that you've all talked about, uh, autonomy, the, the, the salad, uh, uh, history that Elliot Cosgrove mentioned, et cetera, um, uh, the culture of the larger society that Michelle mentioned, are all of those forces so strong and so irresistible that no idea can resist them? It's as if to say, if you're on the top of a building and you drop an object off the building, Gravity is just so strong and irresistible that you can't talk that art that dropping object out of falling. That dropping object is going to fall no matter what ideas you bring to its attention as it falls. Is that <laughs> is that is that the move, or um, are those forces real? But ideas actually matter, and we can actually come up with an idea that can touch the hearts of you, that can touch the hearts of us so that we actually behave differently. I want to frame that as a question. Do ideas matter enough to overcome these larger societal trends? So, and, and, and let me, um, I want to just quote one beautiful line from Leon Morris's uh, article. And, uh, and to me, this, if, if the answer to the question is yes, ideas matter, and yes, ideas can resist societal trends, it's because of this line. He writes, this is on page 22 of his piece, the time has come to use our freedom to choose to feel commanded. Right, the time has come to use our freedom. So in other words, we have freedom, that's the culture. We don't have to get the Greek salad off the menu. Um, culture is there, history is there. Uh, we have freedom, but now we can use our freedom to take the Greek salad that they're offering. Um, and to say, I'm not gonna be a schmo 
I'm not going to be an individualist. Um, you know, if you order Greek salad, that's a good reason for it. I'm going to take that. And and here's so here's idea. If if you haven't read the article, um, here's his idea. If you have read it, here's his idea, which is he draws this distinction between submission, which is I do what you tell me to do because I am controlled by you, and and in the process of I do what you tell me to do, you being God, you being Jewish community, you being halachic tradition, um, I am. I think the word he uses is abnegating, self-abnegation. I'm making myself smaller, right? So I actually really want lobster at Legal's, um, but I'll take uh, the salmon because halacha commands me, and I therefore don't, and I'm going to submit, and therefore I'm going to eat the salmon I don't want instead of the lobster I do want, um, submission. And he writes that that is a losing hand. People don't like being controlled by somebody else, but the concept, and he, he, he finds somehow this thinker from 30 years ago who came up with, again, who came up with this uh, distinction, surrender, on the other hand, is not that I submit to somebody else, but I am going to offer my humanity to some larger purpose, to some larger cause, willingly, because I love this purpose, I love this cause, and I want to invest my life in something beyond me. I don't want to just be about me, right? The point of a worthy life cannot be just me. If, if the point of my life is me, I have a shrunken, shriveled, inconsequential life. If the point of me is to invest me in something larger than me, now you're talking about a worthy life. William James said, the purpose of a life is to invest it in something that will outlast it. The purpose of life is to invest it in something that will last it. So he comes up with surrender as it is. What worthy cause? I want to live a consequential life, a worthy life. What worthy cause can I invest my life in? I'm going to surrender myself to this larger cause. And in the process of doing that, um, I will take on a whole regimen of responsibilities. So what do you think at a high level of this distinction between surrender and Submission, I had never seen it before, I had never thought about it before, and when I read it, I said, yes, if ideas matter, this is an idea that matters. Yeah, this is the, uh, this is, I mean, okay, thank you, thank you, Elias. Um, I think that this is exactly where Judaism has always stood, that we actually have both. You know, we have, we have the sense of being commanded within the Orthodox movement, and we also have the sense of submission, which is happening, you know, around uh, the the other movements. So we've actually we've actually wrestled with this from earliest times, uh, and I, so um, I, I I believe that. And the other thing that I actually believe is that most people actually like to be controlled in some way. That we find that that, that in in a meta way we like to know that things are going to be a certain way. In a micro way, we like to make uh, small decisions. Yes, I'm going to order the tuna instead of the, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, inst instead of the lobster. But on the other hand, I like to know that the world is uh, functions in a certain way, uh, and that the, the government is always going to be there for me, um, you know, the um, uh, et cetera. So I. I so, so you're I saying, if I, if I understand you, then you're saying you kind of don't love what he's saying because you actually think submission. He says submission is a losing hand. Yes. And you're saying you disagree. You think yes. submission actually is a winning hand, I, and I people do. like submission. Yeah. Yes, I, I I believe that. I I, I, yeah. do. I, I think that um, <coughs> two things. I think this is a perfect segue of the um, second part of the cost growth um, article. Uh, we want people who are 
um, what was the term? Surrender. Surrender, yeah. Because of their own convictions to our ideas right. and, not, and not the other one. Because you are commanded to. That's our liberal Jews. That's how we live these days. All right? You can find members of the congregation who will be, yes, because God commanded me. But the majority don't do that. Okay? So we want that. And, um, yeah, um, and the answer, you, you posted another question before about... What was it? Well, I just asked if do you like the do you do you like this concept of surrender? That is that I'm gonna. No, no, no. You said another question before. What was it? Well, it'll will come it'll come past. <laughs> Michelle, what Video, do you think? please. Michelle, what do you, what do you think about this distinction? Do you agree with Dan that there's actually an appetite for submission? Uh, look, I, there's an appetite for everything somewhere in the world. So right. I, you know, I don't think you can ever speak in sweeping generalities about what people want. I, 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 the One of the greatest things that God created in this world was an extraordinary variance between each individual and what's compelling to us. Um, to me, I, I really, I like much better what Leon is doing here with the, the idea of trying to say if the mitzvot are about submission, to me, that's a, that's a tough sell to the modern American mind. You got me thinking about sweet green, right? I, I go to sweet green and I get exactly what I want and exactly the way I want it. And I'm trained to do it that way. That's actually how I live my day-to-day -day life. So the idea of submitting and having to go to a restaurant with that menu of, okay, this is your Greek salad, that's it, that's all you've got, um, it, it's kind of alien to us as Americans. And so submission, I feel like is a harder, uh, it's a harder concept for someone who's raised on sweet green to be able to engage with. Uh, surrender, uh, and I love the way that he describes the surrender because it is so real. All of us surrender a piece of ourselves to something that we want. We think about the, the marshmallow experiment that was so famous right. about if a kid can resist the the one marshmallow they get two at the end and the idea of trying to train ourselves to put off something that we might want or or do in in the service of something greater um, than ourselves a marshmallow experiments a silly example of that much more profound and compelling what I do as a parent all of the time you know I, I don't want to schlep out to, I, I don't know, you had that great sermon about the dance recitals, <laughs> right? Anybody who has sat through a dance recital knows you have to sit through some two, mediocre performances. Two in hours order, for two minutes. Two hours for two minutes. And, two and that phenomenon as a parent is something that we all are thrilled to do, right? We're thrilled to do it because it, it gives us that moment of, of grace, yeah. and, yeah, and that I love in the idea know, of surrender. One thing that is imp important to, to notice here is that in all aspects of society, we face situations where we are surrendering and we are submitting, okay? Yeah. In synagogue, we, we can say the Greek salad, all right? But then the same people who say Greek salad go and play tennis, and you know how to count in tennis. You know if the ball bounces out, is in or out. You don't challenge those rules, and you're submitting to that. You're driving on the street, and you're 
submitting to that because there is a graded good or graded goal. Yeah. But so okay. So, so I mean, I, I think that's you know, a little bit of a semantical thing. I mean, he what, what he oh talks what about what is his article about? What he <laughs> no, no but no he talks it's all about semantics. he talks about um, he talks about architects. Um, I, I wanted to quote this because I, I bad example. It, uh, I see a parallel between the expansive self that emerges through surrender, that is, the, p the parents or grandparents who sit through two long hours for two short minutes, right? But that's because you just love your kid, you just love your grandkid, and, and that's it. So you do it, right? Um, I see a parallel between the expansive, and you're expansive, right? You know, it's like, what's the most important thing in my life? It's my child, it's my grandchild. I'm happy to give those two hours. And it's actually more than two hours, because by the time you drive to wherever, it's four hours. But okay. I see a parallel between the expansive self that emerges through surrender and the work of architects who must deal with parameters not of their choosing. The precise plot of a site, the building materials required by law, supply chain lies, and more. Within these limits, because of these limits, their ability grows, and as a result, they produce works of beauty and humility. Then he says, not only architects, but arguably the work of all artists could be said to require surrender to boundaries, borders, and limits. These restraints become a source of meaning and creativity. So right, I think in real life, all of us are familiar with, if you're an architect, you have your plot. If you're an artist, you have your conventions. If you're a cantor or a rabbi, I mean, I, I was, I, uh, my, form for a sermon post-pandemic is four pages and I was wrestling a sermon to the ground up until yesterday at five o'clock it was at five pages five and a half pages and I I knew I had to cut an, a page and a half to get to my form of four pages which I did and it's a it's and, it, and it's good to adhere to boundaries and I instead of saying well no anything goes no everybody d and everybody has their own version of that everybody has their own version of that so here's my question dear colleagues um, how does this intersect with your Judaism? And, and uh, Michelle, I'll start with you. What is the Jewish analogy to the dance recital of two hours for two minutes? What is it that you do? And in your dance recital example, the question to the parents or grandparents is not, are you just loving the two hours? That's not the right question. The right question is, you know, you're doing it because you believe in, in your, your daughter or granddaughter or son, grandson or grandson or grandson. Um, but you're there even though it's not your first choice at that moment. What's the Jewish analogy to that for you? I, I think there are, s there are so many, but um, I, I want to, can I go back to the architect one too yeah, sure, at, at some point? So yeah, I'll, give sure, the, I'll give the, the dancer side one, but I, I think that the architect one is even more generative because it says that when you are bound into the, these constraints, you actually pull something from yourself that you didn't see before. So I see, you know, when we do Shabbos and we don't go out, you know, we don't go to the mall and we don't, we don't, um, go do you know regular grocery shopping or things like that that we would do on another day and we're at home what i have found is that then you're forced to actually confront the people you're home with and spend time with them and engage with them and connect with them in a different way so that constraint of you're not going yeah. out and doing actually invites this amazing connection that you have with the people you share a life with uh, I have an example. One is the the, uh, the example that you just brought about the dance recital is clear. 
you have you are invited to have an aliyah on Shabbat morning. The service lasts for two and a half hours. You have to deal with the cantor singing for an hour, boring melodies in a strange language, and then you sleep through the rabbi sermon. Thank you. And then and then <laughs> and then you have but a it's blessing. A short sermon. Yeah. You have a blessing for an aliyah, you know, for five minutes, and then you have to deal the two and a half hours. That's a clear example. Um, but uh, yes, uh, I don't know. I. Um, I don't happen to like the, uh, if, if I take exactly this idea of the whole idea convincing people about that in Judaism and coming to temple is a beautiful whole idea and comparing with an architect and boundaries, I don't like that example because if the architect doesn't follow the boundaries and the, and the rules, the roof collapses over you. But if you don't eat kosher, what happens? And that goes back to an old idea of reward and punishment that we read in the Shema that right. if you don't do that, we always read silently because nobody yeah. wants to read it out loud. That if you don't follow the rules and this and that, bad things will happen to you. We so don't believe in that. Can anymore. we just pause? Mm. I think that's the whole damn thing. I think that's the whole thing. And I think to bring it back to the question of 900 to 540, <laughs> to bring it back to you, to bring it back to us, to bring it back to, the, to synagogues, I think um, how do we reverse the tide? of increasing irrelevance of Judaism and Jewish life and practice to so many American Jews who don't do halakha. And the answer is it's a conversation. It's one at a time. And the answer is not that the roof will collapse. And the answer is not that bad things will happen to you. I mean, that's the answer in Leviticus and in, and in Deuteronomy. That's the answer the Tochacha. That's the answer the second paragraph of the Shema. If you don't do it, bad things will happen to you. But we, you know, that's not where we're at. That argument doesn't sell. That's not salient. Um, what's persuasive to me, but it's a much harder argument, is um, the richness and beauty and meaning that you would have if you, if you committed to Jewish life and practice. The, your point about Shabbat. I, I, for example, I, I, I meet with couples, um, wh and we all have this post-pandemic uh, spike of, of couples. I, I'm, I'm in the process of, of marrying 10 couples right now, which is a pretty large census. And... Um, and one part of my practice with every couple uh, is, in fact, I just did it Thursday night with a couple that I met with, is to invite them to think about their Shabbat practice. So if you ask a 20-something or 30-something couple that's getting married at Temple Emmanuel, the children of Temple Emmanuel members, how do you do Shabbat? How, what's Friday night look like? The answer is it's not really different from Thursday night. It's not really different from Saturday night. It's just not different. It's just another night for the most part, right? Those are the people who are in our life. Um, and so the move is, and I invite them to think about, could you run an experiment where I, I want to give you a wedding gift. I want to give you a wedding gift. And the best wedding gift that we could give you is Shabbat. If you could develop a Shabbat practice, and could you start experimenting with an intentional Shabbat practice where you don't go out, you don't use your credit card, you don't use money, you don't have keys, you're at home having a Shabbat dinner, you know what that looks like, and commit to doing that, and either the two of you alone, it's romantic, or it's with family, or it's with friends, um, but it's at home, Shabbat dinner, for no extra charge, you could go to shul, make it a sanctuary in time, and see what that's like. And it's that kind of conversation, one at a time. I, I think if there's a way to reverse the trend, it's to make Judaism relevant, and that's just a conversation. Um, and it's ask them to surrender your Friday night Surrender your car keys, surrender your cash, surrender your wallet, surrender your plans to go to a restaurant, 
and, and stay at home, and you're going to do that because more meaning. Um, so I guess my question to you is, do you, do you think Leon Morris's article could be a helpful part of the solution to um, resist the 900 to 540, um, which itself is a symptom of increasing irrelevance of Judaism to Jews, do you think that this idea, I want to come back to that meta question I posed at the beginning, does this question matter so much that it can be part of the solution? Well, I'm, I don't think this article is going to be particularly helpful because it's Lamala Lamata. It's, um, it, there's nothing... Translate, Dan. Oh, sorry. It's, it's, um, you know, it's uh, like, like Plato's um, you know, idea of, the, of the, the perfect versus the real world. You know, um, or, or the, the the Jerusalem of of uh, of of, uh, of perfection versus the real Jerusalem, the idea that yes, these are wonderful ideas, but where's the tachlis? Where's the actual suggestions on how to make that happen? Like the conversations that you have with people, you know, what, make a plan for you know for Shabbat. Uh, how does that resonate with people? What specifically are they going to do? And I think the specifics, the feet on the ground, is really where where it's you know where the rubber's going to meet the road, as it were. Um, that if we don't have something concrete and specific, that uh, that ideas are not necessarily going to fly. What Dan? What? Let me just understand I, what you're saying. What would idea. be concrete and specific that yeah. is more actionable? Well, that this is why everyone else is here. <laughs> yeah, I, right. I, I, I'm not I'm not sure what, what that would be. Um, now, if, if we are, yeah. if we agree that we can't say to that couple, to whom Friday night and Thursday night and Saturday night are all the same, you are commanded to do Shabbos. That's not going to work. Okay, right. the default energy is they don't do Shabbos, and that is not the ideal. Uh, yeah. So the question is, what will change the landscape? And we are in search of an idea right. that that can appeal to, and, and that comes from a sweet. What's it called? Sweet dreams culture? Sweet salad culture? <laughs> What's it called? Sweet, sweet, sweet green culture where everybody gets to pick. That's our culture. We're not going to resist it. We're going to go with it. Um, that if you pick, and that's what he says, use your freedom to choose to be commanded. If you say, hey, by the way, I will just say this. I've been doing this for a long time. M you know, most couples that I work with report, oh my God, Shabbos is amazing. Mm -hmm. And I actually think, you know, one couple at a time, most couples that I have worked with over these years, uh, report that I, I didn't know what I was missing. And and so it actually, Judaism is pretty good merchandise. And if you can get people to actually open themselves to it with an open mind, they say yes, for the most part. Um, Michelle, what, 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 or Elias, Michelle, what do you think? Yeah, is I think there are different reasons, different things to examine here. Um, one is, um, uh, you, always, you always like to bring, uh, you know, the, the Lubavitch Rebbe. So there is something that, uh, at least how I see it, when you go to a Chabad synagogue, all right, no matter which part of the country that Chabad synagogue is, pretty much you're always going, you know what you're going to get, okay? They follow certain patterns, certain rules, and people who go there understand what they are going and what's being offered. You go to a synagogue, conservative synagogue, here, in Texas, in California, or in Chicago, you'll have completely different experiences. So first of all, are, is there a unified voice in the conservative movement? No. So the conservative movement as a whole, I think, failed in that aspect. I don't know you as rabbis in your early ages, 
I never taught in my life, not to students, not to kids, not to adults, a, cl a class on kashrut. Never in my life I taught a class on kashrut. I taught Jewish history, Jewish music, Nusach, Tamea Mikra, all, all what you want. Never on kashrut. Why? I don't know. But actually, because it's so foreign to any people, and one of one of the pillars of the conservative movement is kashrut. So. From the beginning, we've been doing the things wrong, and the conservative movement have been doing the things wrong. So there are two things defining more my answer. One is that the liberal movement, in some cases, has failed in terms of bringing a unified voice. And also, <coughs> you know, every synagogue is different, in a way. Yeah, so. Oh, I was going to say, I have taught a class on kashrut. I had to bring Dan in for me because I'm a vegetarian. So, yes. <laughs> so how did it um, work? So she we went to Sweet Green. And, you know. <laughs> wait, wait, no. Let me ask you so a quick question. When I teach, when we teach Tamea Mikran Nusa, right. you see the results. What are the results of kashrut right, class? So, uh, what's interesting is largely an intellectual experience, and it's something that you put out there as a Jewish choice. And I think, actually, without knowing, I mean, Leon has identified something that I have felt for a very long time when I speak to kids or when I speak to adults here, that we are using our autonomy to choose to be bound to these commandments. And those commandments, therefore, can give us the frame in which we can discover something new. We can transcend ourselves. And that's largely the way that I would engage with kashrut, that I have engaged with kashrut in the past when I've taught it, that it's a sacred frame that we can use to make Jewish choices which bind us to our tradition, bind us to each other, and ultimately bind us to God. Yeah, we have so much to talk here, Wes, and thank you. But do you know any religious school in the country, conservative religious school, that one of the subjects is kashrut? I mean, we can ask Alana, but I think ours? I hope at least it, it was pre-pandemic. The majority of kids experience kashrut for the first time if they go to a very traditional, I mean, beside, aside from the houses, to a camp like Yavne. And they come back and they say to their parents, guess what, I ate kosher for two months, I want to be kosher right. now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So right. our religious schools has also, have also failed in that aspect. Well, I guess don't want to generalize. Perhaps well, uh, there are. Guess what? We have a religious school, yeah. so <laughs> we can actually we can yeah. we can change that, and we can think about the ways in which we do help our kids understand that um, surrender to some of these beautiful traditions that we yeah. have not only makes your life better. Because I think Perfect. the challenge last week, where we left off, was if the mitzvot are only about making your life more meaningful. If it's not more meaningful to you, if you if you do kashrut and you say, nah, it doesn't really do anything for me, then you come back to your parents, to your religious school teachers, to anybody and say, nah, it didn't really work for me. Right. And you disconnect. Yeah. Wes, what are your solutions? So, Enlight us. Well, I... Um, Wow, that's amazing. No, 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 no. Here, <laughs> let me put this differently, right? I think the statistic that I understand is that 75%, self-reporting, 75% of conservative Jews self-report that they don't keep kosher. One quarter self-reports that they keep kosher, okay? Um, so I don't want to fight that fight. I don't really care about that fight. I mean, I keep kosher. I'm also a vegetarian for the most part. I keep kosher. But you have, you have to figure out where you can win. And I have tried over the years. I, I have actually taught many classes on kashrut, 
and I have done individual counseling on kashrut, and um, I have a zero success rate. So I have tried. 75% uh, of our members self-report that they don't keep kosher. 25% report that they do keep kosher. So I don't want to be um, using my finite capital on that issue because people are smart, people are autonomous, and they're going to choose to make their own decisions. And nothing I say in a classroom or with a book or with a passage or with a postdoc is going to change that. So I want to change the conversation because to me it's not about the halachic niceties. Um, to me it is about, in a more general sense, how do we make Yiddishkeit more relevant to, uh, to their lives in a sweet greens culture where people are going to choose. And the fact is most people are not, 75% are not going to choose kashrut. That's just not their deal. Right, and so, uh, so now the question is, okay, what might they choose? What what might they say yes to? Where can I find a yes? Where can I find a delta? Um, so here's where I would like to to end uh, this conversation. I would like to end by asking you a personal question, and I'll share as well, which is, what's an example in Judaism where you did some version, as you understand it, of your own surrender to something? And by surrender, I mean that you do something that you don't want to do at the moment, right? Like the parent or grandparent that does not actually want to spend two hours for two minutes, uh, but they do it, and they wouldn't think otherwise of not doing it. What's an example where you do that in Judaism because you are surrendering to something that's more meaningful to you? And then the question is, how do we bring that to our people so where they're in the sweet greens of life, they might choose their to use their freedom to say yes to another mitzvah, to another mitzvah. Any examples of surrender in your own personal Jewish life? I'll go first. I'll go first, because um, I've been thinking a lot about this. So I am, I'm actually Haredi about only one thing. For the most part, I am the opposite of Haredi, but I am Haredi about one thing, I never miss Kaddish. I never miss Kaddish. Every morning at 7 and every evening at 7.30, I am in the Gan Chapel. And if it happens like there's a, I had a teaching obligation Thursday night that I couldn't avoid, I bring, you know, a sheaf of Minchamarevs with me, and at 8.45, I ask the people there, can you make a minion so I can say Kaddish, okay? Now, why do I do that? I don't do that because I believe God commands me to do it. I don't. Uh, I don't even do it because I think my father-in-law would command me. He wouldn't. I do it because it's just meaningful. It just feels like I want to do it because I want to be the kind of person who is in an ongoing relationship with a dead father. Like, and this is the way that I'm in an ongoing relationship with a dead father. Every morning I'm like, Dad, I wish I could call you. I can't call you. So I want to say you could all be kadash. And every night I'd like to say, hey, Dad, I'd love to call you. I can't call you, but you could all be kadash. It's just something that's deeply meaningful. And deeply meaningful means that I will move heaven and earth to get there. I will, I lay literally flown in red eyes from Israel and red eyes from California, and I get home from the cab at 6.45, and I just go straight to shul to not miss that Kaddish. Um, that's because I find it meaningful. I am surrendering my autonomy, not to commanding God, but to meaning. And... Um, that's, and I think if we could help people choose to spend their autonomy on something that was meaningful, 
than one person at a time, we could reverse the trend lines. I can't think of anything more, more beautiful than what you just said. Yeah, yeah. yeah. no, I, I think for me, I would put in um, sports on Shabbat <laughs> because my kids love to play, or at least two of my kids love to play sports, and um, there's a lot, especially when you get into soccer, of Shabbos soccer. All my friends go to Shabbos soccer to watch their kids. It's really a joyous thing to be able to be out and about. And and it, it is a sacrifice in both their lives and in our lives to choose to not participate in sports that require you to, um, to travel, um, that require us to travel. Um, and and I think so. You say no to your kids. Your kids. So say no I say I say we can't as a family participate in that. Um, and that that it hasn't always been the case, right? Sometimes my kids have been able to find ways to participate in um, in things. When Maya was little, we used to walk to the the soccer field. She hated soccer, so this was not going to be a long-term <laughs> arrangement. But you know, we used to go to places that we could walk and try to participate. But there's a big gap socially in terms of the um, the environment that that we live in um, when you can't participate in the travel sports uh, leagues on Shabbos. And instead, you know, my kids come here by and large. Um, and we invite them to be part of our family. There have been times that I've missed out as a parent in um, being able to have that cheering moment with my kid um, on Shabbos, and I think w definitely like walking in the snow, it's something that you do because you prioritize the family time that comes from it. You give up one thing you give up the the peer community in order to create the family community of traditions that goes on and on i hope someday my kids will choose that they will look back and not remember you know benjamin not remembering we didn't get to go to soccer on saturday but that his parents found a way for him to play soccer on sunday and that we were able to do Shabbos here at Temple Emmanuel together on Saturday mornings. So much. That's so powerful and so real. Just last question. Thank you for sharing that. I mean, you get the why of it and the sacrifice of it and what you get out of it as, as an adult and as a mother and as a rabbi. Do your kids get that? Um, uh, probably not always. <laughs> um, but I think when you're a parent, right, you play the long game and sometimes you plant ideas and, mm. and things. I, I want my kids to know that we are bound to something bigger than ourselves as Jews, mm. and that that does mean that we sacrifice in order to create mm. the community and the culture that is such an important foundation of all yeah, of our and lives. And you know, that's another conversation we can have along so many conversations. What is we as parents, how we influence our kids, you know, in, the, in, a, in a way that we live our Jewish lives. In my case, I never thought that the same boundaries I put on my kids and Shabbat, I never thought that my oldest kid would go to Jewish Theological Seminar next year. Mm -hmm. So in that case, he became more from than me. And um, you never know how you can impact on your kids. Mm. Mm -hmm. Well, without, first of all, dear colleagues, thank you for 
really thoughtful conversation. I love being in dialogue with you. Elias, do you have a song that can take in this? I do have a song, and it's interesting because I never, we never think much about what we do. I mean, at <laughs> least I, I just put automatic pilot and I sing and I sleep and I think about the soccer match and anything. Now, um, so we sing every Friday morning, you know, we do Shabbat with the nursery school and we see the sparkle in their eyes when we do the Hala song or the Kiddush song. And we sing a song that we normally don't sing during liturgy, which is about beauty of Shabbat. We sing about beauty of God, how God is wonderful and that give us strength. But we never specifically said that Shabbat is beautiful. Maya Fea Yom is what is beautiful today? Shabbat is here. Maya Fea Yom. Shabbat Shalom, Mayafehayom. Shabbat Shalom, Shabbat Shabbat Shalom, Shabbat Shabbat Shalom, Shabbat Shabbat Shalom, Shabbat Shalom. Thank you, dear colleagues.